0: Incidentally, we're having a Lottie Moon concert tonight. Uh, our choir, uh, Seth, the worship team, and Heather will be leading us in worship. We would love for you to be to come out with us tonight and uh, enjoy them leading us in worship. If you would look with me in verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you through the one that this text introduces. And we ask you, Lord, today to warm our hearts towards him. We ask you today to strengthen our faith in him. We ask you, Lord, to to deliver us from worldliness and worldly desires. We ask you to comfort us today in the comforts of Christ. We ask this for his sake. Amen. You know, the heinous shooting in California on Wednesday, it shocked us all, it it angered us. And again, in November, I think on November the 13th in Paris, there was a mass shooting as well that really did uh, cause us to question what's going on in the world. In fact, when ISIS attacked in Paris, that was the, the first time they had attacked a mass metro city the way they did that day. 129 people were killed and even more were injured. But more would have been killed had it not been for the heroic efforts of a man named Ludovic Boumbas. He was attending a friend's 35th birthday party at a, at a restaurant in, in Paris. And then the gunman came in opening fire, and that's when he began to take action. His friend, Chloe Clement, uh, who survived that, she described it this way. She said he jumped in front of the bullets that were aimed at her, and he died in her place. Now, Chloe's in the hospital now. She's recovering from shots to the arm, but she's going to be okay. But here's what she said, I cannot get over what this man, Ludovic Boombas, has done for me. She keeps repeating his name over and over and over. You know, the story of self-substitution... For the salvation of another resonates in all of our hearts. Why is that? We're hardwired for it. That's what we were created for. We were created for the ultimate supreme substitute, the God-man Jesus Christ. You know, that's the story of Advent season. That very reality. And that's the story of John, the gospel of John. And that's the story of John 1. And John wants us to believe that. In fact, in John chapter 20, John tells us why he's writing everything he writes in that gospel. He says, these things were written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, when he speaks of life, he's certainly speaking of eternal life. That is our hope. But he's speaking of abundant life here and now. He has come that we might have life and that more abundantly, John chapter 10. And so John is writing everything in his gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Everything he writes has that as its goal. And of course, we recognize that faith is the instrument by which we appropriate this abundant life faith is the instrument by which we appropriate uh, our hope our pleasures in Jesus Christ and faith is something that can be strengthened so for most of us here today we already believe you say well what does the gospel of john have to do for me i already believe that jesus is the christ the son of god well your faith is like a muscle it can be strengthened And the more you believe, the more you experience abundant life. And so this gospel is for you. So that you would believe even more that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The more you believe that, the more you will live in that hope. The more you will flourish as a human being. And there are some here today who've never trusted that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John is writing this to you so that today you would believe That you would repent of your sins and believe in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. That you would believe that He is the Son of God. That He can forgive you if you will trust what He did for you at the cross and in His resurrection where He took God's judgment for you. The judgment you deserve because of your sin. So John is writing all of these things for that reality. Indeed, John has rightly been called the Gospel of Decision. John is writing so that you would believe rather than not believe. John is writing so that you would have life rather than death. John is writing so that you could experience the light of God rather than the darkness of your sin. That's why we are reading this morning in John chapter 1. Now to accomplish what we want to accomplish... We're going to look at John's prologue. It's the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John over the next three weeks. It's the hallway, if you will, into the entire Gospel. And it centers on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You say, what does the word incarnation mean? Incarnate, in the flesh. This prologue centers on the reality that the eternal Son of God has become a man for us, and our salvation. And what I want us to see over the next three weeks, and this is what I'm praying, all we need for abundant life, eternal life, and godliness is found in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Now, John is a part of a corpus of writings called the Gospels. What are they? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of these four Gospels center on the person of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the the all-sufficient work of Jesus, but they all have distinctions. They don't contradict each other, other, but they all have distinctions. For instance, Matthew and Luke begin their Gospel with Jesus' birth. Mark, interestingly enough, begins his Gospel with John the Baptist's ministry about 29 AD. John begins his gospel with the Son of God on a journey. It's not a journey from Galilee to to Jerusalem. It's a journey from eternal bliss with the Father to becoming a man for our salvation. That's how he begins his gospel. And so in verse 1, he begins in eternity past... And by the time we get to verse 6, we're going to be about 29 A.D. in history. We'll get to that next week. Look with me in verse 1. We see, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, you know that this verse reminds you, it takes us back to another passage Earlier in Scripture, what is that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Of course, John is writing in a post-fall context. When God created the heavens and the earth, in Genesis chapter 1, everything He created was good. There was no sin, there was no sorrow, there was no disasters, there was no tragedies, sadness, everything was good. But then mankind went AWOL in Adam. And everything was distorted by sin. All of creation, including humanity, came under the curse of sin. So when John writes, in the beginning was the Word, here's what he's signaling. God in the Son of God is coming to make things right. He's speaking here of a new beginning. And each one of us, if we're believers today, have experienced the fruits of that ministry. We have a new beginning when we're regenerated. And there's some of you here today, perhaps you need a new beginning in a relationship. Maybe you have a a marriage that needs a new beginning. You you, You need your children to experience a new beginning. You have wayward children. Or perhaps you're just struggling in an area of sin. We see here in the very first verse of John that Jesus Christ is the hope for that new beginning. But it also signals here that the Word, that is the Son of God, is not to be included as a part of the created order. He existed before the created order. He existed in eternity past with God. And that's why John, or Jesus can say later, the night before He was crucified in that glorious priestly prayer as He is laying out the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible, John 17, 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he shared the very infinite glory of God his Father in eternity past. Now, the word for word here, in the beginning was the word, is the word logos. Logos. It's used 40 times in the Gospel of John. So if you just learn that one Greek word, logos, you know a significant uh, term in the Gospel of John. It was a word that was widely used in the first century. And it's a part of John's theological genius that he could take a word that was used even among the secular people of the age and show how this word is grounded in the... And the creation of things. In other words, it was this word by which God created everything in heaven and on earth. In fact, eight times in the creation account, we read these words And God said, When God speaks, things begin to happen. Starting in Genesis 1 When God spoke, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. Now think about that. By this kind of eight words, God speaks the entire universe into being. In fact, all through the Bible, in fact, it is the word of God by which he accomplishes his purposes. Isaiah 55, the prophet says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there but makes it spring forth and bud, so shall my word go forth from my mouth. It shall give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. It shall not return void. It shall accomplish my good purposes. Or in Psalm 107, one of the glorious verses there, He sent out His word and He healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. Here we are learning that that word that God spoke, that that word that He sent out, To accomplish his glorious purposes is a person. It's a person. It's the Son of God, the God man Jesus Christ. In fact, John is the only writer to use this terminology. The one that Jesus was most intimate with, the Apostle John. John says, This word that God accomplishes everything by is a person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He uses that, in fact, in verse 1. But notice in verse 14. And the Word became flesh. He uses it again in First John 1, verse 1. And that which is from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. And then he uses it in Revelation 19. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. Isn't that beautiful? The name by which he is called is the word of God. So four times in John's writings, he describes Jesus as this word. The fact that the Son of God is the word of God reveals to us that God is a revealing God. Now, why is that important? Because we're ignorant. We need a revelation from God. All the dysfunction in your life—this is not an overstatement. All the dysfunction and drama in your life is due to the ignorance in you, due to the hardening of your hearts. Ephesians four eighteen. There is no exception to that. Now you experience the ignorance of others. So in a fallen world we experience dysfunction from others sin as well. But it's always two-sided. It's all it's it's two ways, okay? All the drama, all the dysfunction that we experience in this life is due to our ignorance and our ignorance is our fault. It's our sin. It's due to the hardening of our hearts. And yet, John is telling us in verse 1 That God in His Son is going to address that. He comes to us as the Word of God. How do you deal with the ignorance in your heart? It's not by going to college. There's plenty of ignorant people who have PhDs. It's by bowing the knee to the Word of God. God is a revealing God. But we see as well He's a person. And note, this Word is was with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now what John is saying here is that this word is distinguishable from the Father. Now where do I bring the Father into this? How why do I bring the Father into this? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So he's distinguished here from the Father but they enjoy this intimate relationship with each other. Yet, this Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what does that tell us? There's distinction in the Godhead. There's a distinction between the Son of God and the Father, and yet there is equality in the Godhead As well. Now some would deny that. Some would deny that there are distinct persons in the Godhead. Some would say that the Father and the Son are just kind of different modes, different manifestations of the one undifferentiated God. Okay? But note here, it says he was with God. While a person can be by himself... A person cannot be with himself. All right? This person is with God. And so, what this one verse does, it crushes the heresy known as modalism that teaches that the Father becomes the Son, who then becomes the Spirit. That was taught in the book The Shack, which is going to become a movie. It was a best-selling book, and it will likely be a very popular movie, and it's a heresy. The Father, Son, and Spirit are simultaneous persons in the Godhead. They're equal in essence and glory, and yet they are to be distinguished. But also, this crushes the heresy known as Arianism. Now, what is Arianism? Well, this heresy was so dangerous that... It was behind the first church council called the Council of Nicaea. It's important that every Christian be aware of the Nicaea Council, the Council at Nicaea. Because out of that council came the Nicene Creed, something that we strongly believe today as Orthodox Christians. In fact, historians call it the the greatest theological controversy in the history of of the church. It began in 318 with a man named Arius. He was an aged pastor, but here's what he was teaching. He was teaching that there was a time when Jesus was not. Now we recognize there was a time when he was not a man, but there was never a time when he was not the eternal son of God, God of very God. And so they formed a council in 325, the the Council of Nicaea, to address that heresy. Unfortunately, most Christians today aren't even familiar with the Council at Nicaea. In fact, the only familiarity they have with that Council is from Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which, as of just a few years ago, had sold over 100 million copies. Now... The reason that book is problematic is that it misrepresents who God is. It misrepresents who Jesus Christ is. In fact, um, in this particular book, chapter 55 to be exact, there's a historian named Tebing. And he's explaining to a, a girl named Sophie about Jesus. And here's what he says. Constantine needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition. And so he held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Now keep in mind, there's 180, 100 million people reading this. Many of them who don't even know their Bibles. And he is speaking with authority about something that's happened in history. And he says, Then Sophie, apparently stunned at this revelation, stammers, Not the Son of God? To which Tebing replies, Right. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Now Sophie is flabbergasted. Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity? was the result of a vote? And then Dan Brown puts an exclamation point on the point he just made. Yes, a relatively close vote at that. He's saying that essentially the Council of Nicaea was a political move by Constantine. And in this council, they vote on to to decide whether they're going to ascribe Jesus as God, a very God. And by a close margin, they decide we will recognize Him as God. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. First of all, it wasn't a close vote. We don't know exactly how many were at this council, but we know there were at least 220, and likely as many as 318 pastors at this council. In fact, we know how many no votes. We know how many denied his deity at this council. Two. Two out of two twenty does not sound like a close vote to me. In fact, Eusebius, who is the first church historian, he was there. As a side, there was another man named there who was named Saint Nicholas. Uh, uh, he had a red suit on at this point. No, I don't know if that did. But Eusebius looks around the room and he sees all these pastors, many of them with visible scars on their body from having been persecuted, beaten for their faith. Men who were willing to die for the name of Jesus. And so that's one of the problems with Dan Brown's account. But the second problem is that throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament on, it's clear that the Messiah would be both God and man. And that's what John is teaching us here today in John chapter 1. In fact, it's so clear that Jesus Christ is God of very God in this passage that this is one of the most attacked verses in the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses even today use this verse borrowing from Arius to teach that though Jesus is the highest of all created beings he is not God he's a godlike creature. And the reason they argue that is they they say that there's no definite article the word the before the name God. Okay? They say if he is God a very God then it should read the word was with the God. So how do we answer the Jehovah's Witnesses there? Well, it's clear from the fact that He creates all things. It's clear from verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side has made Him known. It's clear from John 20, 28, where Thomas confesses Him as God. And in 1 John 5, where Jesus is clearly said to be God, God, that John believes that Jesus Christ is God. Secondly, John was a monotheistic Jew. Now what does that mean? That means he believed in one God. There is one God. No faithful monotheistic Jew would ever communicate that a mere person, a mere creature was a God. God. A third way we would argue this is that the word, the name God, is often used in John without a definite article. Four times in this passage alone. There's plenty of times where the definite article, the, is not used before the name God. In fact, if John had written the word was the God, we would have a hard time distinguishing Between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we've already learned here that there is equality in the Godhead and yet distinction. In fact, to drive this home, look with me in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Literally, the hearer, the Word was face to face with God. And so equality, yet distinction. That's verses 1 and 2 in a nutshell. And he adds verses 1 and 2 to prepare us for verse 3, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, in the Jewish worldview, it was rightly believed that only Yahweh is the Creator. There are no intermediary or subservient Beings are angels who are part of what God created. It is God who creates and everything else is created. All right? In fact, in Isaiah 44, one of those great passages, because Isaiah, in Isaiah 40 to 48, is distinguishing Israel's God from all the false gods that they were bowing to. And one of the things that distinguishes the true God from all the false God is He's the one who created everything. Listen to what he says in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. Now keep in mind, that is Yahweh. I am Yahweh who made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself. And so when John says, the word of God, the son of God, is the one who created all things, he is directly linking him, connecting him with Yahweh in the Old Testament. And he wants us to read the entire gospel of John through that lens. In fact, we're to read the entire New Testament through that lens. For instance, in Hebrews 1, he says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also created all things. Now, why does this matter to us as we draw this to a close? Why is this passage so important to us? Well, it has everything to do with the reality that we were created, we were designed, we were redeemed to worship Jesus Christ. Listen to Revelation chapter 4. It's a, it's a beautiful passage. Uh, it's, a, it's a passage we're going to be looking at probably within the next year. In Revelation chapter 4, these creatures in verse 9 and the 24 elders are falling down and they are singing, they are saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and honor And power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Now who wrote Revelation? The same one who wrote John one. And he's saying, based on the reality that you created everything that exists, you are worthy to receive glory and honor. And power. That's what we were redeemed for. But here's the problem. Not a single one of us gives him the glory and the honor that he's due. Not one moment of your life have you done that. Not one moment of my time in this pulpit have I done that. Giving him the glory and the honor. That he's due. As my sovereign. As my God. As the word of God for me and my salvation. And as a result, because we do not give him the glory and the honor that he's due, our lives are dysfunctional. Our lives are broken. Every problem in your life can be traced back to failing to give the Son of God the glory, and the honor that He's due. Okay? You show me a person who is struggling with sin or a relationship, and I'll show you a person who has not given God in in Jesus the glory and the honor that He's due. Why do I say that? Because when we live and uh, function the way God designed us to function, we flourish. Okay? But here is the good news. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. That's why the Word of God came. He came for us and for our salvation. In fact, that's why it's important that the Godhead be triune. Because the second person of the Trinity came as our representative. He took on human flesh and as our representative, here's what he did. He gave God the Father the glory and the honor that he's due as your substitute. Not one moment of, li- of your life have you ever done that. Not one moment of my life have I ever done that. He did it for me. So that I could have a righteous standing with the Father. So I could be deemed holy before a holy God. The Son of God gave Him the glory and the honor that He's due as a man in dependency on the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And then this son went to the cross and took the wrath that we deserve because of our treachery, because of our spiritual embezzlement, taking the resources that God has entrusted to us, life our time, our talents, our gifts, and using them in a way that builds our kingdom and our names rather than His name and His kingdom. That deserves judgment. And Jesus, the Son of God, took the judgment for us in our salvation. Yes, He is the Lord of creation, but He's the Lord of the new creation as well. That is what we celebrate in Advent season. You know, it's interesting as well. Paul is reflecting, perhaps even on John 1. In Colossians 1, and he says these words, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. By the way, we were created as the image of God, but we sinned, didn't we? So our image is tarnished, is distorted by sin. Kind of like a, a mirror in a bathroom. After you've taken a shower, it just steams up the mirror. You can't You can see an image, but it's not a perfect image, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the church, His body, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. But here's what's interesting. Paul takes that creation account and he links it to the cross. He goes on in that very passage and he says, For it pleased the Father that the fullness of the Godhead would dwell in Him bodily and to reconcile all things to Himself through Christ, having made peace through the blood of His Christ. You were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled you through the body of His flesh through death. Death. It's a glorious passage. Paul is saying God, cre- Jesus created, was the agent of creation, and he brought created order into being, if you will, for his supremacy. And because we went AWOL and we rebelled, Jesus Christ came to reconcile us back to God. That's what we celebrated at then. In fact, the Gospel of John, every passage has to be connected back to that final chapter. John is establishing to us why the son of god, the messiah, had to die. Every passage in some way shows us the word of god created everything that exists, but the created order is under a curse. How things are going to be restored? The cross, where he comes under the curse for us. That's what we celebrate at Advent. It's what we celebrate at the table. Today we are observing the table. What does this table represent? It represents what Christmas season is about. It's not just about a little, a baby boy dressed in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. It's about the Messiah who came to die.